clusters and competitiveness, where we introduce you to the world of economic clusters, what they are, why they're important, and how they can bring unprecedented levels of innovation and prosperity to your region. I'm your host, Ian Gormley. Clusters and Competitiveness is produced by the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, a Canadian think tank based in Toronto. Through our conversations with those who work with and within clusters, we'll talk about what clusters can and can't do for your region. On our first two episodes, we heard from a variety of voices from the local Toronto clusters community. Those interviews were conducted individually, but for our third episode, we brought all those people together in one room for a roundtable to discuss and debate some of the more pressing questions that face clusters both here in Canada and abroad. Our panel is made up of... Duran Research Director at the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity... Bethany Moyer, Director of Research and Insights at Toronto Global, a group mandated with attracting foreign direct investment into the Toronto area. Paul DeFreitas, a strategist and urban economist who teaches at George Brown College's Institute Without Boundaries, and Melissa Pogue, former clusters expert with the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity and current manager of program reach and operations talent development at Mars. Melissa gets us started with our first topic. What role do clusters play in driving inequality in their regions? I think that some of the research has shown that when you're thinking about economic development, you know, it's great to think about, you know, spreading the pie wide, but uh, when you're thinking about what industries you want to support, you do have to be a little bit intentional when you're thinking in your own region which industries you're wanting to support, and that can lead to sort of picking some winners. And unfortunately, that might mean across regions that it might lead to some inequality in terms of those areas that are leveraging their existing benefits or their positive attributes. And they might be in areas which are highly productive. And so it can lead to some of this inequality where there are some regions that have kind of this winner-take-all sort of thing that happens where you get a mass of of really educated people in areas and that they might be flocking to certain areas and not to others. I don't don't actually think it's like as simple as that. I don't think you can say we pick this over this. I don't think it, it really happens like that. I think there is some just organically things that become more successful. Um, But there is something to be said when you look at funding and like, you know, government only has so much money um, and you can kind of take the approach of like sprinkling it a little bit across everything or you can think about putting bigger chunks towards fewer things. And so this is, I think, where the term picking winners does come from is is like where is government um, putting that money and and it's a really it's a really tough one because if you sprinkle it across everything every you know maybe people feel equal but it may not be enough to like provide the catalyst that something needs to really like get the momentum that it needs to really grow and prosper um, but if you're putting a lot towards something then to Melissa's point there's something else that's not getting those funds I think it's something that you can never make any everyone happy with all right so I'm ha- I have a problem with this question. So it's, it's a bit misleading. No, it comes up a lot. So when we attach clusters to inequality, I, first of all, I, I, I don't like that question because what cluster are you talking about? Are we talking about the manufacturing cluster? Because I don't hear a lot of people talking about, oh, those manufacturing jobs are leading to real inequality. Or what's the reverse of that question is less clusters, more equality? I don't think so. So I, I think we're, when we talk about inequality and clusters, I think we're particularly talking about knowledge clusters. 
And what knowledge clusters love is connectivity, which usually means density. So they concentrate. And anytime you concentrate, you, you tend to drive up prices. But this is not unique to this cluster. It's happened in the history of cities, right? Successful cities attract success, and it leads to spike in prices um, and costs. So it's, it's tied to a successful place, and it's tied to successful people. I think the real challenge with clusters like, like knowledge clusters is when they grow really quick, city can't transition to supply the things that, that now are being challenged, like affordable housing, uh, mobility, congestion, all those things. Um, but even knowledge clusters, I mean, I think about the examples in Toronto. Th when we think of knowledge clusters here, the places they're built on now were built on the bones of a dying sector, which is textile. Uh, so Spadina King, which was a not a great place when those pla when they moved in, or Liberty Village was a giant carpet factory, or Queen West, which was Massey Ferguson, which is a, a, a manufacturing. Were, were we better off without those things? So I understand what they're getting at, but I think it's it's about cities not being able to keep up with their success, especially a place like Toronto, where at the same time we're becoming more successful, we also continuously grow in terms of populations, put a lot of stress. Regardless of whether clusters directly or indirectly drive inequality, once it takes hold, regional clusters have both a moral obligation and economic interest in mitigating inequality. Paul starts us off. So the underpinning of, of their success is talent. And we know that knowledge, talent, wants livable cities. And that means places they can afford to live in, places they can move around in. So if tech, if tech industry is dependent on talent, they need to be participating in how we maintain a quality of living for the cities because that's what they depend on, right? It's not just talent. They want, they want a, a livable place. So it's not good enough for a company like Google to have a bus just for their employees, which is fine, without also participating in how do we make it easier for everyone else to also move around the Bay Area. So absolutely, they, have, they, they, they shouldn't feel like paying taxes and, and helping the economy. That, that's where it ends. Because their, their competitive future is dependent on the place, unless they're willing to move away, which they can, but they're going to have the same problem somewhere else. They need to be part of the discussion. They should have solutions, they have things to say, and they, they should help support some of the thinking of that. And I think that goes back to that point about the inequality piece, because I think that when a cluster is successful and working with government to build, let's say, things like infrastructure, we're talking about a bus that's not just for Google employees, then that helps um, people living in that area, but it also helps enable other clusters to grow. So I think it's kind of like... Um, yeah, I don't really think it's just about equality or inequality. And we're starting to see a lot of research, particularly in the U.S., where um, even in kind of inner city um, regions where maybe people aren't as well off, the fact that they're close to often like a larger metropolitan area, there's a lot of kind of benefits from that. And even a successful cluster within an inner city has can generate like positive um, externalities or effects that ultimately better everybody. Yeah, I agree. And I think the, you know, the Amazon HQ2 process, I think was like a good catalyst for this conversation. I know it's something like Richard Florida has been talking about a lot and it's really, his goal is really to get places and companies thinking differently. When a company is looking to locate, you know, in a, 
in a new location and, and they're, you know, asking for incentives and tax breaks and all of these things, it, it really, you know, it doesn't make sense because you no longer have the ability then to provide the infrastructure that is required to support the talent that the company needs. I think what, you know, Richard Florida was saying about, about Amazon is, you know, cities, nobody should give an incentive and it really it really should be the other way around it really um and 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 maybe not the other way around but but it should be working in partnership so you know what um and i think paul like said it perfectly these companies um you know to make a success successful cluster it is you know talent talent is 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 key um and and so i think it's in everyone's benefit to contribute to you know the the pieces that are required to to bring in the right talent yeah I think that when you have a cluster that is generating a lot of um, activity and that's being really successful it's then kind of you know how are you able to translate that windfall to those in the region who aren't part of that cluster and who might not necessarily be uh, benefiting from that activity directly. Certainly they'll be benefiting indirectly in terms of maybe the amenities that are available to them, but um, you know, it might be pushing them further out so that they have to travel further to their workplace because housing, the price of housing then increases. So how are you, you know, looking at those people who are probably serving the cluster in some way? And so then there's kind of a moral question there about if they are serving those people that are, you know, driving that economic value, you need to start thinking about those people, how are your location-based decisions helping them? At that point, it's around sort of a regional strategy um, and that, you know, then we can start thinking about what are some of the regional levers that you can pull. What what we're starting to see now, and hopefully we see more of, is where companies are starting to realize their responsibility in producing future inequality. So, for example, Google is now investigating what the future of AI will mean in terms of, of jobs and, and looking at it specifically to determine how they can help, how, how they don't just make that a, a huge problem with that opportunity. So we need more of that because that's the other part that they can participate in heavily is in helping produce a new talent and making sure that that talent is more inclusive than it has been in the past. They have a huge role to play in that and um, beyond just saying, hey, government or academia, help us with that. I hear that way too often from clusters. And what is your role in training and in helping create more of that talent you say you need? Big role there for them. Shifting gears, we need to talk about cluster strategy in Canada and the U.S. compared to Europe. As Melissa explains, the two continents look at clusters particularly how to manage them quite differently. I don't think it was that they're that they're further ahead in, you know, clusters and economic development in that sense, but in terms of how they organize their clusters, absolutely. In the way that they are funded um, more holistically and collectively at a government level, th- certainly, yes. Um, I don't know, but they have a national cluster strategy. Like that at the, from an EU level. Like that, they're that they have dedicated resources um, that go towards cluster strategies regionally. We in Canada take a much more industry-led stance to our clusters. So in that sense, we're very different in how we organize 
our clusters. I would say the big difference is that here in Canada, and I think in the U.S. also, here in Canada, we always say uh, cities are a creature of the province. Constitutionally, they are. And even in the U.S., I would say cities are run by the state, really. And you see this there. Whereas in Europe, cities are a creature of the national government. Even London, until recently, was run by the national government. It wasn't run by the mayor. Um, and, and if you look at how transit is funded in Europe, it's funded nationally, right? They don't have this, this, this weird idea that the national government does not play a role uh, with the growth of cities. And we really mean, I think, I think we really mean regions when we say cities. Whereas here we don't. It falls down another layer, and it's more obfuscation. And, it's, it's, and I think it makes a huge difference when the national government is directly involved and understands what regions mean for, for the national for the national economic health, basically. I think what you see in places like Europe is you have a more regional perspective. Um, and part of that is because the, the sort of the municipal scale and the provincial scales, it tends to be weaker than it is here. So here we have these strong subnational governments and we have less of a sort of regional perspective because of that. And I think a lot of, a lot of the reason they're, they're organized that way because they have that in place, whereas here we don't. And then you take a place like Toronto, which doesn't have that layer, and on top of that is, in North American terms, kind of uniquely polycentric. So you've got all these separate places, which are pretty big size with their own sort of clusters, and it becomes extra hard to, to come together because they're all going a, a thousand miles an hour on their own thing. So I think it's important to understand that history. Even places like Tokyo have like a regional government so they can organize that way. We here in the U.S. and in, here in Canada and in the U.S., we don't have that kind of mentality, and it takes a lot more effort to get that going. But I do think that there is a desire to work together and collaborate. I think the challenge is how do you organize and how do you create the structures to ensure that you're, there's collaboration and that there's like what, you know we always talk about cluster managers and cluster organizations because they are effective in not only enabling collaboration, but also addressing the needs of a cluster. Um, and so I think that's a, we hear that a lot of like people want to work together, but then kind of that next step is creating those organizations and to actually organize properly. I, I think that's exactly right. And even today, you know, we were at, um, at a roundtable discussion that was talking about the mobile gaming industry and um, kind of the intersection with artificial intelligence, and there were a lot of players around the room. There were, there were immigration lawyers, there was um, financial institutions, there was academic um, players. Uh, there were a lot, of, a lot of people around the room, and I think everybody is really kind of saying the same thing, and you know, what, what we need to do is A, what we need to do is B, and I'd say there's, there was, for the most part, general consensus about these things, but I think what you kind of left leaving is, okay, who? <laughs> you know, who is going, like these are all great ideas, but it's not really anyone's role to take them forward. Um, and so I think that's just the challenge. You either have to have a few kind of selfless organizations that are saying, this is not my day job, but I'm gonna do it anyways, or you need them to kind of come together and say, you know what, we need a, an organization that's going, that their job is going to be helping to take these issues forward. Um, and, and that would be the role of a, a cluster manager. But I, I feel like I've been part of these conversations a lot lately. Yeah, absolutely. 
that, like whose job is it, but in a weird way also too many people think it's their job. Too many people at the wrong scale think it's, too jo too think it's their job, so it's muddled. Right? We have the, the national government uh, doing this very, very sort of sectoral approach. We have provincial governments also the wrong scale, provincial scale, and they're not comfortable at the scale they need to be to be proper cluster uh, managers, and that's the regional scale. And again, in our, in our political system, we really don't have that scale. So we have not enough people and too many people at the same time is a weird problem. There's also just culturally a different perspective towards government. I think that in North America, we have a general distrust in government. It probably comes back to some of our conversation earlier about this picking winners mentality. Um, and so I think that also contributes to this sort of, well, who's, whose job is it? You know, I don't want it to be their job, but, you know, wh who? Yeah, I, I'm going to argue that. We say this a lot here, but we, we don't pick winners, actually. I wish we would, but I, we don't. I agree. I, what we're doing instead is we're spreading the, the key resources we have. We don't have a lot of them. We take them and we spread them thin because we're trying to cover as much ground as we can, cut as many ribbons as we can, and we're not actually picking winners. Because picking winners means doing tough things for politicians. That means being very focused in a particular place and a place that may already look like it has a lot. But they don't understand that those spill-offs effect that you were talking about earlier applies regionally, applies provincially, applies nationally. Those clusters are key drivers of innovation for the whole country. They kind of understand that, but they're not willing to do what, what it takes to, to grow them and that be very regionally focused. And are we missing a layer? I would argue that yes, we are. Like, especially if we look at like the Toronto region, you know, there's like 20, you know, there's uh, 29 single and upper tier municipalities that make up like the greater Toronto area, the Toronto region. Almost all of them have their own economic development in them. And so, when you look at like, are there are there cross-cutting organizations that actually have a mandate to to look at the region as a whole, and and they're few and far between. Um, Toronto Global is one, um, and we're you know one year old, <laughs> and you know I'd say maybe Metrolinx is is the other one looking at transit. So I think it's you know there there aren't a lot of these organizations, or there there isn't really an organization that has a mandate to, to bring all of these players together um, in a regional context. Our example is Montreal International, but they were also mandated by the government, I think it's the Quebec government, to like work together as a region. So they've been successful because of that. And, and I think that's, that's kind of where, going back to what Melissa was saying about that strategy piece, it's it feels like very much like forcing collaboration Superclusters is i think another one where it feels like again trying to force that collaboration but it gets people to do what you ultimately want to to achieve and also then just to note like eu funding one of the requirements is to actually work with and collaborate with a partner that is outside of your country so you have to work with any other country and so they're always looking for partnerships outside to get funding so ultimately who should be taking the lead government industry is it top-down or grassroots? Here is Bethany. I don't think that works. I think if, if you say it, that doesn't work here, like if, if you were to say, okay, the government says we now have a cluster. It, I do think it, it needs to, to be more organic than that, but 
I, I think that government has a role in sort of supporting, you know, those industries and, and those cluster groups that come together. Government should be at the table and, and perhaps with funding dollars, they shouldn't be the sole funder. Like I, I think it is really a shared responsibility amongst all of the players in the cluster. Well, it's Canada, so I'm going to say government. <laughs> because for some strange reason, our, our, our corporate entities are very, very shy of taking the lead. Compared In the U.S., I would, I would clearly say the, the sector, because they're very comfortable in taking the lead. So I would love to see both, as, as Bethany would say. They need to collaborate. They need to work together. Um, but uh, government is, this is a key role for government is to bring people together. They're in a position to do this. So I, I'm very comfortable in having the government start something and then bring in other partners that they need to bring in and support. Shouldn't just be on the government. But they should take the lead, I think. They should be comfortable taking the lead in starting something and supporting something if it can grow to the way Bethany was talking about earlier. Yeah, I think my concern is like, I think if, um, I think that government can take the lead in saying, we have a mechanism. So if you identify as a cluster, there is this, you can take advantage of this opportunity. I, I'm hesitant to think that you can just sort of build it from complete top down, but I think giving, kind of providing the, the, the framework and the tools and maybe the funding that, that those that identify can take advantage of is, is where I see government playing a, a role. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. If they're, if they're, at the end of the day, not comfortable in understanding that a cluster is a regional thing and they want to make it this, this giant economic development thing, which they're more comfortable in, because that, that includes more, more parts, uh, then they are the wrong partner. And then we're going to have to rely on somebody else. Because if, if they don't buy into what a cluster is and what it represents and what scale it depends on, then they're not, they're not actually helping and, and they shouldn't let someone else lead. I, I agree. I think they, there's a deep desire for government to be at the table, especially with funding. It's not just about the power of government in their ability to convene, but it's also like bring some funding. But I think ideally it is it should be business-led. And I also do think that there's increasingly a, a role that we're starting to see, whether it's like Toronto Global Art Institute, I'm sure other kinds of organizations are, as they're convening people, recognizing the challenges that they're facing and often are doing that work of maybe what a cluster organization would do, but at least starting the conversation or c allowing there to be a space for a conversation that would hopefully allow businesses to then self-organize. Government is also supposed to be about creating the environment for businesses to thrive. So taking a look deeply at um, you know their policies around you know taxation on business investment, thinking through how they're supporting the people in their regions or in their in their countries or provinces or whatever, thinking through just like in general how you're creating a really good business environment, your education policies, things like that, so that they can then lead to um, the bubbles of economic activity that will then generate new and exciting and innovative clusters. But I do think there's there's definitely a lot of alignment, at least politically, in terms of in a, a, a desire to talk about clusters and work on clusters. Um, I think our biggest challenge is how do we get organized? Like, how do we actually do this in a way that's going to be helpful and also going to jump really get collaboration going? Mm -hmm.
Finally, I asked our panel if they had any thoughts as to what Canada's cluster priorities should be. Not surprisingly, they did. Here's Paul again. I think we have tons of challenges. I mean, we, we did talk about one of them was inequality, right? Um, we don't want to just grow for the sake of growth, right? We want growth that's positive in terms of everyone's mobility and opportunity. That's a big challenge, especially when we start talking about uh, things like AI and automation. Big, big challenge. <coughs> in terms of Canada, yes, being organized is a challenge. We have lots of challenges in terms of Canadian clusters. We're not innovative enough. We're, we, we lag uh, most of our most of the developing world in tech adoption. We don't give value to innovation. I think it's, uh, that goes back to our history as sort of a resource-dependent country. we got to shake that. we got to stop thinking that's what we are. That's not what we are. Uh, we are going to heavily depend on uh, knowledge and talent. What, what all clusters are doing is they're trying to move up the value chain. That's what they're all doing. And that means more competition, more global competition. So that's what we need to be focused on. Uh, so as a small country, and we are a small country, we have a scale problem too. So we're not innovative enough and we have a small market. We have a lot of challenges. So we have to continue to be super outwardly focused. That's how we beat our scale problem is we trade to the world. That's what we have to do. And that means more competition. So I would really like to see policies leading to greater use of innovation, greater appreciation of innovation. And even where things like design is to me is innovation, right? Uh, less mediocrity. We, we, I think we tolerate way too much mediocrity across the board, and not just the economy and politics. In a lot of things in this country, we're very sort of complacent because we're, we're a happy, blessed country. Uh, we need to pull up our socks and really focus on our, our strengths, which we do, and, and, uh, but also celebrate the great things we, we are super at. I think, this, I think we do lead the world in figuring out how to socially integrate people and how to try to be inclusive imperfect yes uh, lots of room for improvement but it, it's something I think that's we should also start leaning on that because I think that is one of our great great values yeah picking up on that I think at least from a Toronto perspective we're looking at people uh, particularly at Mars we're looking at people in the tech sector and how are we attracting the right people the people that will help us grow um, you know, we hear from our, our ventures in Mars, you know, that the talent is the major choke point for them in growing. You know, we have ventures that are adding um, double their, their workforce in the next year. We hear from them. And then the, the biggest factor from them is where are they going to find the people to do this? Toronto added more tech jobs um, in 2016 than San Francisco and New York combined. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to fill that? So we need to figure out how we're going to not only get the people who are here now, um, how we're going to get them trained for the, the jobs that are here now, but then how are we also attracting people from um, around the world that have the skills that we want them to have? Yeah, I, I think we have a lot of, you know, Paul touched on a lot of the challenges, and I don't disagree with any of those. Uh, I also think we have a stronger base than we might think we do. Um, and when you you know compare what we have in the Toronto region, yes, housing affordability is a challenge, but we also do have policies that are in place to address housing affordability. Are they perfect? No, but they're a step in the right direction. 
you know, we have policies. I think um, Ontario has been very forward thinking in a lot of education policies, the increase, you know, the commitment to increase STEM graduates, the fact that our universities are publicly funded, you know, the commitment to a thousand new AI grads, um, even the increase in funding for students, you know, and, and the number of students that actually attend university and college for free. These are really strategic investments that are, I think, put us ahead of the curve um, when we compare ourselves to a lot of other, um, especially North American jurisdictions. I think there is a recognition that talent is, you know, investing in talent is where we need to go. And um, so I think that, you know, we have a lot of the ingredients that are here and the challenge is, is really just stitching them together and making sure that they're talking to each other, making sure that the investments that the government is making are really truly reflective of what the businesses need, finding where you know we can make improvements, and and really, so I think the challenge is just figuring out what what or who or what like what is that glue that you know I, I don't think that's an, an easy question, <laughs> or you know there's not an easy answer. That's the end of this episode of clusters and competitiveness. This is the third in a series of podcasts exploring some of the most asked questions about clusters, as well as many of the issues currently facing their growth, both in Canada and across the globe. A big thanks to Dorinda, Bethany, Paul, and Melissa for taking part in our roundtable. Their perspectives are greatly appreciated. Clusters and Competitiveness is produced by the Institute for Competitiveness and Prosperity, a Canadian think tank focused on raising the competitiveness and prosperity of the province of Ontario. The Institute is also the host of the 21st TCI Network Global Conference on Clusters, taking place in Toronto from October 16th to 18th, 2018. For more details, visit www.tci2018.org. This episode was written and produced by myself, Ian Gormley. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends about us and rate us on iTunes. It's a big help to spreading the word about the pod. And to make sure that you never miss an episode of Clusters and Competitiveness, please hit the subscribe button. Once again, I'm Ian Gormley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.